special guest today, a good friend of mine, co-worker, uh, radio host, writer, author, former publisher of The uh, Red Eye, and filmmaker, and very esteemed just media powerhouse in Chicago. Um, and yeah, really one of my biggest role models. So Amy, thank you so much for joining. It's what, really what a, good. What a nice introduction. Thank you. <laughs> yes. I appreciate that. I'm glad to be here. I've done more more um, prep for this than I have my show <laughs> this week, but but I had fun because I was I really um, I had to kind of dig through. I felt like I had to dig through my whole life to come up with what what is my list of things that has that have influenced me the most, and that was fun. I was tweeting about it last night. Really, I, I said everybody envisioned me like sitting in a pile of books and Spotify playlists. Exactly, and that's that's my kind of point of this whole show is just how nothing is original you know nothing is based in total originality because there's always these influences you know whether familial or you know writers authors poets whatever they're everywhere um and especially for somebody like you that is just so you know widespread in her creative energy I'm really excited to see what you have brought to the table so um, let's first start out with just give me a little brief glimpse into what you're working on. What's your big thing right now? There's never one big thing by design. That's been my whole life. I like to have a lot of things going at the same time. Um, it keeps my brain feeling limber. If I'm doing the same thing, I, I feel a little, you know, constricted. Um, so I've my whole life I've always had a lot of things going at once. So right now I'm making a documentary film about online harassment, particularly directed towards women and um, other underrepresented voices. And I'm working on a couple of narrative films um, that I'm producing through my production company, Strange Ways. I'm hosting radio here at WGN, uh, three different shows, um, The Business Lunch and then The Saturday Night Special and then Guth and Hupke on Politics, which is really just code for therapy because the week he took vacation I was out of my mind with stress because I <laughs> he and I did not gathered to complain about politics and, and analyze them um, so I'm, I'm doing that and I, I have um, Yak Channel which is a podcast network that I co-founded with James and Osdall and you know lots of things and and they're all fun and I enjoy them all but at the end of the day I'm a storyteller and I've always been a writer. I have a tattoo of a typewriter on my back and it's a typewriter that I received as a child. I got it when I was about seven because I used to make a little newspaper for my household and getting the typewriter really improved production and its efficiency and then getting carbon paper doubled it and it was all very exciting. So I would write these breaking news stories, and it was all very dramatic and silly of what I imagined a newsroom to be like. And I would be like, 
wait, stop the presses. The flowers bloomed. I got to write a story about that and put it in this edition. And I was very, I took it very seriously and was very disciplined around the deadlines of it. Um, but, but that typewriter is on my back and underneath it, there's sort of letters in a spray just kind of coming out of it. Intentionally, they don't spell anything. And underneath it, the letters all fall into different botanical elements that are in my life. The crops from my grandparents' farm, flowers of places, you know, like the national flower of South Africa, because I had a really um, powerful experience um, being there, um, state flowers where I've lived, and just just plants that mean a lot to me. I have tattooed under it because I think it's all like this big cycle of things in your life feed you and come out in some form of storytelling. Wow. Damn. That is exactly, <laughs> that's exactly it. Okay, I'm so excited to start on your list of, and I restricted you to five as I've restricted all of my guests. Which was hard. It's really hard, but But I think it's good. It's good to have parameters because otherwise I would have walked in here with a list of a hundred things. Exactly, and it it really does make you realize how you know how grateful you should be. Well, at least when I started thinking about it, it as like. I owe so much of my existence and my creation to all of these people that came before me who I've never met, um, but, you know, loved dearly. Yeah. And it ended up being kind of a therapy session for me because I, I started seeing parallels in making this list that I had not really noticed in my life before that uh, that we'll get into. But I, I started going, oh, that's so interesting. I like this person's work for the same reason I like this person's work because they broke these rules. Therapy, is- and I won't even charge you a okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Done. There you go. Okay. Awesome. What is number one? Well, these are in random order, and it was uh, um, it was a difficult decision. But but the first thing I'm going to say, the film work of David Lynch has been a very big influence in my life. It at various points and for various reasons. But but the main thing about it that is so powerful to me is that he he is just a conduit of creativity, and the the medium is kind of irrelevant to him. It's mostly film, but it's also photography and it's also art and it's also books. And, and it's, he's a big meditator and he, I just, I admire his work so much. And I know sometimes people say, oh, it's so gratuitously weird. And he's done some weird stuff, but haven't we all at least imagined it? And he's just put it, put a camera in front of the the things that are, you know, weird. But his work has been so influential to me from the very first time I saw Eraserhead. I was like, what in the hell is happening? I've never seen it. It's it's a fine film. What is it? Tell me. Tell me. The, no. No. No, no, no. I you just got to go see it. You just or you just got to just sit there and watch it because it's it's a it's an experience. You got to take it in. And what was your experience with it? It was it was this feeling like you don't have to make a film or tell a story or write you know paint a picture or whatever it doesn't have to be wrapped up in a tidy bow and it's okay for it to be weird and it's okay to do it your own way and that was a very powerful thing to me that I don't think I fully could articulate when I first encountered his work but then you know through Dune and especially Blue Velvet and then definitely Wild at Heart that's one of my favorites of his next to Twin Peaks Firewalk with me and the Twin Peaks series which is timely because it's you know it's come back and um and the crumb documentary that was so powerful because at the end of crumb you go oh my god you, you just kind of sit there for a minute and go man i thought my family was messed up this is the whole you know other what's the, thing what's the synopsis of that it's one? all about it's about the work of robert crumb and his life and there there's even there is like a title card at the very end that throws you yet another curveball and it's just it's powerful and it's interesting and um his life was not 
not easy or pretty and and yet he he made all this art because he had to he had to get it out on the page but David Lynch um, has just worked on on so many things in such a such a neat way that he is like the medium is just but another way to express his being a polymath you know and he he does all this stuff and he feeds his brain in ways you know with all kind of things and you see that he's from Missoula Montana you see that in his work because of the way he he was normcore before normcore was a thing and in even I would say especially in wild at heart you see that although you see it a bit in Eraserhead but mostly wild at heart and and certainly in Twin Peaks this like the strange eeriness of the completely mundane, like the diner and the coffee and the cherry pie and all this stuff in Twin Peaks, that's so ordinary. That's not so off the wall, but he made it so eerie and, and haunting in, in the way that he did it. And, and I think that's a lot of Missoula coming through. There's a big film school now at the University of Montana in Bozeman, and I there's... Uh, Last time I was in Bozeman, I was talking to some some people I saw shooting a film, these students, and and they were all such big Lynch fans. It was like this pilgrimage to them to go to Montana and and understand his way of making the very normal and ordinary so incredibly beautiful and powerful and interesting. And I mean, in in Twin Peaks, sometimes just the shot of of a traffic light tells you this, you know, haunting, scary thing. And so he's able to do subtext with with very little, which I think is really powerful because I've always thought less is way more. And and so his work has has influenced me a lot. At this around the same time, for some reason, like in my head I always put because um, they're both Nicolas Cage films, but I put Wild at Heart and Raising Arizona kinda they they overlap in my head sometimes. And I'll be like, no, wait, that line was in Wild at Heart. <laughs> Short Fred Wiener, turn to the right. Okay, that's what that's that's definitely Raising Arizona. Okay, this one is uh, you know, there's so many he was kind of the same guy in both films, Nicolas Cage. So I think that that certainly, you know, comedy and Coen Brothers has a big, big place there. But but weirdly, it converges with David Lynch, in my mind, because of that ability to make the very mundane and very simple and very everyday ordinary stuff fascinating and haunting and eerie. Totally. And is there, can you think of one scene in particular? I know there's so much, but if... If I could find like one scene that, you know, kind of encapsulated that or one little bit of dialogue. Oh, my gosh, there's so many. I mean, I think in Wild at Heart, there's a scene where where they've just had sex and they're laying in a bed and they're smoking and like they're they're just kind of talking with having this very ordinary kind of pillow talk. And, and she says something like Laura Duran says, how, how old were you when you started smoking? He goes. And he, he's such a tough guy in there. He goes, I don't know. Guess I was about four. <laughs> he just, and it's just something about the his minimal response is powerful and it's funny and it's good. But there's so many great scenes in that um, that film. Even even um, even the kind of terrifying ones are 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 good and interesting. And you know, you see Laura Dern's mother, who's played by her actual mother. Um, she she there's Wizard of Oz metaphors throughout the thing and, and and imagery. And at one point there's kind of this Wicked Witch of the West thing and she's losing it and she's just rubbing lipstick all over her face. She just starts putting lipstick and just keeps going and going. And and there you see, you know, she's not afraid to be she's not afraid to freak out. And I think a lot of filmmakers are even if you have a star particularly a woman 
coming undone, she's still very beautiful and put together and made up while she's doing it. But but like again, there's that that certain ordinariness and there's the ability and willingness to be very real, even if it's not pretty and if it's not convenient and if it's not very glamorous. That that's weirdly relatable. Even if you've never freaked out and put lipstick all over your face, it's just you understand. Like so much is conveyed emotionally through through strange things like that. Totally, I love that. So, could you pick one? instance of David Lynch or of this this fascination with the ordinary and this like lack of kind of glamour around mm-hmm. it in your work mm. that's a great question I, I'm sure I'll come up with a better answer in I feel like hours. I just saw an Instagram post from you that was like oh the Shabbat candles maybe it was that so every every Friday um I, I am Jewish, so every Friday I light Shabbat candles if I'm home and I'm around. And it's, to me, less about religion at that moment and more about feeling connected to my community. And so the caption on that Instagram says, Shabbat Shalom, peeps. Admittedly, it was uphill this week. There were highlights, to be sure, but also pains, misses, and near misses. Moments in which I felt like a dumb idiot or like I was too much, too straightforward, or too foolishly confident while also not being bold enough in other ways. Not quick enough, not enough enough, but it's okay. Shabbat is a lot of different things to different people. And to me, one of those things is a reset, a time to think it through and do better next time. And it's just a simple picture of candles lit, and there's really not much to it. I suppose that could be one of those things. I mean, I'm also sort of a weirdo on Instagram, and like I'm willing to put like, I put this like yogurt mask on my face and took a selfie because I'm, I don't think, I mean, I I participate in the 365 Feminist Selfie Project and for the, I don't know, third year in a row. And to me, it's important because we give, we make fun of selfies a lot as being a thing about vanity and and a thing about being too much. And 365 Feminist Selfie was created by a Chicagoan. Um, She writes a blog called Viva La Feminista. Her name is Veronica Ariola. I've had her on the air before. Um, She does a lot of really tremendous work here in Chicago and and now around the world because of Instagram. And it's this idea that we should take up space. And and there's a lot of complicated stuff with selfies. I mean, for generations, or not generations because they haven't been around that long, but for years, moms aren't in photos because the mom is taking the photo because the mom is the the doer and, and even in egalitarian households the the domestic responsibility tends to fall to the woman and so there's the years of photos without moms in it and I know in my family I've got tons of pictures of me and my brother and my dad that my mom took and and I'll only maybe a couple with my mom and and the selfie has changed that because now you see moms just kind of in a quiet moment even like nursing a child like I want to remember what this is because I know I'm going to blink and she'll be older and it's changed that. And, and 365 Feminist Selfie is about just showing up like you are. And it's not about filters and it's not about putting on makeup so you can take a picture. It's just about showing up the way that you are, even if you look like hell that day. And, and people will, will tweet their faces in tears. And people will tweet their faces like with their back to a room saying, this is overwhelming. I hate being here, but I have to socialize, but I'm having an anxiety attack. Help me. You know, people will put powerful things on there. And I love that. Just kind of come as you are, do your thing sort of way. Yeah, I love that, too. So the realism. Yeah, realism is is interesting. And and simplicity with realism is even more interesting. And I think that's, if anything, I pull that a lot out of out of Lynch's work into mine because he, you know, the example I gave was like that diner and just like a shot of sitting at an 
some 70s looking booth, you know, having coffee and a piece of cherry pie suddenly is fraught with meaning and subtext and all this stuff, just like life is. It's never, you're never really saying the thing you mean unless you're particularly forcing yourself to practice radical honesty. You're, you know, if you, if you say, hey, what's up, you're, you're, you're probably asking something else, you know, how are you? can be a million different things. It could be, hi, because we're standing in the same space and I feel obligated to talk to you. Or it can be, how are you? I've been so concerned. You right. know, it can be a whole range of things. And and so I think there's there's code in everything, in, in imagery, imagery, in words, and in, in everything. And I think Lynch captures that so, so beautifully. I love it. That's a really good one to start with. Okay, moving right along. Um, moving right along, I'm going to, I don't know if this counts, but I put it on there anyway. Because um, it's it's based in music, but it was the Riot Girl movement. Cool. In the early '90s, um, I was very involved in the Zine stuff. I was. Um, I could so see that. <laughs> yeah, I, I worked on a couple zines, um, these radical feminist zines, and I had long hair that at one point was purple, and it was magenta at one point. And I always wore like, it's funny to me right now here in 2017 because I see young women that I could almost be their mom, and I see them wearing stuff I wore in the early '90s, like. I wore Doc Martens. I had a couple pair. I had some like ones that came up halfway up my up my shins, and I wore them with ripped up fishnets and these cut off jean shorts. And I was I had this like Smith's T-shirt, this safety pins all over it was ripped. <laughs> and and I went to all these concerts as grunge was happening, as it was first happening. I I went to all these shows and and I was like, what's ha- what's the activity down there? Oh, it's a mosh pit. Let's go. Let's do that. And 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 in a way it. The first time I was ever in a mosh pit, it was so horrifying because it was a bunch of aggressive young white dudes that were pushing and shoving and acting out aggression. And so what Riot Girl aimed to do was like Kathleen Hanna, Bikini Kill at the time, she moved on to La Tigra and then the Julie Ruin, Ruin which I have loved all of her work. Um, she used to shout to get women to move up front and she would she would bring the women up front so that it wasn't about male dominance right there at the front of the stage and she would you know do a show in like a little cute 50 sweater and her underwear and and she didn't care and she she encouraged a whole generation of us to sharpie things on her arms and climb and do things and there's a picture of me that it it exists somewhere in the world I don't know who has it but I've seen it so I know it exists and I hope it hasn't been you know burned or shredded or anything but (laughs) it's um it's me at a it's at a Jane's Addiction show, and I'm wearing a little, like I, I was all about the thrift stores, so I'm wearing fishnets and my, my combat boots and a, a Catholic schoolgirl uniform skirt, and on the hip it was it was um, monogrammed Gretchen, and this <laughs> kind of like ripped up kind of vest that was really tight and chokers and all the things like that you see right now that yeah. people are wearing. Um, and I had written all of these all of these things on my arm span and across my collarbone in sharpie and I was I just like walked up to the tallest dude I could find and gave him like the up signal and he he just sort of boosted me in the air and I just sort of stuck my hands out and my friend had a camera and took a picture of me up there with like really close to the stage and I have no illusion that it did anything that it changed anything that it did anything by me standing on that dude or anything but it felt it felt different. And it was, um, you know, I grew up in a house, my mom is very shy and very quiet. And, and, 
you know, I have some female relatives that are just kind of characters, but for the most part, I grew up in the South around like the pretty, like tough yet genteel women. And when I was um, around early high school, my mom woke me up one morning and she she was just like, just get out of bed. Just, just come on, just get dressed. We're going, we're going. And I didn't know what was happening, but it seemed urgent. And we went and there was, um, there was a pro-choice rally happening and a counter protest of anti-abortion activists. And we stood there on the pro-choice side and I, and I was standing kind of close to the front near where the two groups were butting up against each other. And I remember thinking even at whatever, 13 or 14, I think I was 14. It was the first time I'd ever heard women scream and yell, especially for something that they believed in. And that was re- that was really powerful to me. And, and it was kind of one of those weird moments like time stood, stood still for a minute. And I, and I, it was powerful because I had only seen relatively, I don't want to say submissive, that's too bold a word, but I had only seen the powerful and bold and aggressive things coming from men up to that point. And so suddenly to see that, I was like, oh, hold up, wait a minute. And not only that, but I think that's the moment that journalism made sense to me and freedom of speech and all of that stuff made sense because I was like, even though I, I disagree with half the people here, I realize the importance of everybody being able to do this and being able to assemble and protest and, and go here and do this. And that was a powerful moment. And so um, by the time Riot Girl came just a, a little bit later, I was good and ready because it was like a that day at that protest was like throwing me into the fire of suddenly I understood what was at stake I had been told you can do anything you want but suddenly I saw it I saw like there are people there are women screaming because they so passionately believe in 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 having autonomy over your own body or not and that what a big deal and what like if something that personal could be so so political and so public look at the other things in the world that are at stake so, so I'm going to say the Riot Girl movement because it, it picked up where that moment left off suddenly of women screaming and women setting the rules. And it wasn't setting the rules via men. It was like, no, get the hell out of here. Girls up front. And all the women would come up front and we would have our own mosh pit and we'd beat the crap out of each other. But we were laughing and we'd emerge with like a black eye or a split lip or like an elbow to the boob. And it didn't matter. You you tussled a little bit and you, it was almost like this big, I mean, mosh pits are so tame now. I, I see them now. I'm like, you guys don't even know. You don't even know. And we were just like wrestling. It was right. so, like, be, we beat the crap out of each other. But, but it's been cool to watch Kathleen Hanna keep going because, um, you know, like I said, I love La Tigra. I love the Julie Ruin and, and I love her music and love her. And God forbid I ever meet that woman. I'm probably just going to cry. <laughs> she's, I just, she's just been such a big influence in my life. And you know what? We didn't get everything right during Riot Girl. There was a lot of, we didn't really understand intersectionality and, and it was primarily white feminism and, and we screwed that up. But I, I still think what did happen mattered and what, what did happen, we pushed back against, because grunge came on the heels of like the, the glam rock guys, like Poison and Cinderella and Guns N' Roses and all that. And like suddenly grunge was a different thing with a little more like, like a little more sensitive guy or a troubled guy, the tortured artist guy. But it was still men and it was still white men. And even affluent white men were like getting their flannels from thrift stores to look not affluent, which Sounds is familiar, which is still right, which is always going and always happening. And and I was proud of what was happening because we were saying it so unflinchingly and we were fighting so hard unflinchingly. And it wasn't 
feminism wasn't a bad word, and it's gone through some changes since the early 90s, but it wasn't a bad word then, and it wasn't, um, it, it was it was fun to be a rabble rouser then in a different way. So I think that, but with that comes a lot of music, right? That comes with Bikini Kill and uh, that song Rebel Girl. That was 1993. That's such a good song, and it still just stands as this great anthem. Evans to Betsy's song Terrorist, which was I think the, a year later, probably 1994. What a great song. And it's, it's, and now it's loaded because terrorist is like such a different word than it was. I mean, terrorist has always been a bad word, but now it's so politicized and such a, such a different thing. But, but that was, you know, I mean, basically she's just screaming terrorist in, during the song, but it's a great song. It's kick ass. And, and she's, it's a display of power that was aiming at, at, not just rivaling, but dismantling and toppling this this male stronghold on music, especially loud and aggressive music. Right. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So the Riot Girl movement. Where do you see? How has that evolved to whatever feminist feminism is today, or is it? Have we become more docile again? What What kind of well change have you seen? I think it fell apart. I don't think it evolved. I think it fell apart. I I think the Powerpuff Girls screwed everything up because suddenly it became this like girl power where it was about like it was about straight up let's talk about vaginas and the power of you know like let's unflinchingly say this word let's um, like Kathleen Hanna there's a picture of her in like a yellow sweater and underwear at a show in which like she she did not get a bikini wax for that. Like, she's just, you do you, Kathleen Hanna, you know? And it was about, like, unapologetic feminism. And I think the Powerpuff Girls era kind of screwed that up right around the right around the early 2000s because it became, like, make it cute. It's okay as long as it's cute, and it's okay as long as it's dainty. And, and really what the bigger subtext was was, Feminism is okay as long as it's not threatening. And that's the whole point. You know, the it people get threatened by that word. It just means it just means it's about power structures and, and we're just we're not asking for dominance. We're just asking for for equal standing in the power structures and seats of power in the world. And we still don't have it. So I think we lost a lot of time and ground. And then suddenly I heard a lot of young women saying things like, well, I'm not a feminist or anything, but, and I was like, the hell you aren't? Like, we didn't, what the hell? What's in between your legs? What are you doing? Like, <laughs> yeah. do you have a job? What? Of course you are. And, and so it, it became a bad word. And that used to really keep me up at night. But to be honest with you, I think right now the political climate that we're in has has re refueled that soul a little bit. And um, I was out getting audio interviews of people during the women's march, and I was thrilled to see a bunch of, a bunch of like Gen Xers like me out there, and and there was certainly a feeling like we're not done. Like, all right, we're we're a little older than we were. We can't quite mosh as hard as and beat the crap out <laughs> of each other at a like a 
uh, a bikini kill show, but but we could hang and we still have fight in us. And and it was like it kind of went dormant and it's it's awakening. And I think younger women who may have been in the more docile feminism from the Powerpuff Girl era, I think they're pissed too. I mean, you know, the the war. Don't tell me the war on women is not real. It's definitely real because I mean. Pick a publication and look at the headlines. Look at anything that our our president has tweeted in the middle of the night. Look at any of the health care bill proposals. I mean, it's it's quite real. And and I think that's making people it's shaking them out of complacency. So if there's one good thing from from all this, it's that it's that people are like, oh, wait, I can't just coast on dialogue. I can't just coast on being a good person and and having one friend of color you have to it's a daily it's a practice it's not a it's not a one-off right absolutely i love that um okay moving along moving okay number three is the book skinny legs and all by tom robbins because um for the same thing that happened with david lynch i read that book and went oh my god it's okay to not write in a very big mainstream way and Tom Robbins, I had, I, I've written my whole life, like I said, with the typewriter thing. I've always written, I've always been a storyteller, but I was, I, I was afraid to let anyone see it. Once I became old enough to realize that I, what I was doing, and, and I got really self-conscious about it because it was a little weird. And I mean, even as a, like a, I'd say tween or a little bit earlier than that, I was writing some like pretty dark and weird things. I was, I had a little Wednesday Adams going on and, and I was, I was ashamed of that because that wasn't what I was seeing represented around me. And, um, you know, I had, um, I had a death in my family. I had a family member killed by a drunk driver. And to me, writing about that was making sense of that. And, but I didn't show anybody any of that because it was dark. And, the, the line that I heard from my family and from the people around me, it was very clear that you should not say anything negative because you're a downer if you do that. Don't do that. So I became kind of ashamed of, of going there and going dark about anything. And, and then like Tom Robbins in that book, and, and all of his books are good. I, li- I like them all. Like Still Life with Woodpecker is a very good book also, um, particularly if you have red hair and you have not read that book, please read it, because there's a whole thing about redheads in there that's really interesting. But it's Skinny Legs and All, there's this, there's a lot of plot lines going. In it, inanimate objects have full sentient lives and have adventures and have heartache and do things and have people that they're attached to and go find them when they leave them behind. But it's all kind of through this, there's like a belly dancer and there's a restaurant that's that's like, the whole thing, the, the restaurant is like this metaphor for the, for peace in the Middle East or conflict in the Middle East. And so there's everything, every possible thing you can wrestle with is somewhere in that book. And as this belly dancer is like pulling off these veils in such a magical way, you can't even fathom it. It becomes sacred and divine and, and it's so magical. And I mean, it's art and sex and politics and humanity and food and I mean it's everything it's like all this rituals insecurity love romance destiny I mean it's all this stuff contained in the metaphor of this belly dancer and it's so good and so powerful and I was like whoa that's super weird wait a minute he got published wait a minute that's a thing and it was a it was a very it was a life raft to me I mean it was like 
it was like somebody threw me a rope when, when I read that book for the first time. My aunt gave me a copy of it, and she said, I think you'd like this. I have no idea why she did that. To this day, I don't know. She doesn't remember. She was like, did I? No, oh, whatever. I just saw it. Thought you might <laughs> like it. But, but that book, I mean, that book changed my life because, I mean, there's at one point a can of beans and a sock and a stick and a shell going after the person that left them behind. Like, that's not a thing you see every day. And it's not by any means, like, um, unsophisticated. And they're doing so. They have they have goals and plans, and they're concerned about things. They have to go get their person. And that you hear from them throughout this book. And the, the shell goes back to, like, the the Byzantine era. And the stick is this ancient, I mean, they're... They, they, it's fascinating. They have history contained in them and they know it and it's powerful and cool and weird. And, and all that comes up in that book. And I was like, how in the world did that man come up with this? I've since, I'm always interested in writing rituals and I've read that Tom Robbins will just, he writes, I'm like, write it all down, get the whole draft out and then deal with it. He will go one sentence, even if it takes him a week to just get that sentence. He, that's what I've read that he, that's how he does. I, I don't, I couldn't function that way, but it shows in his writing that he has that much care. And he makes words suit him when they do, when they fail him. And that is definitely something that comes through in my first book, Three Fallen Women. And a little bit lesser so, but still, it's still there in my, in my second yet published book, um, where I just, like, that word doesn't, I don't have a word for that thing. I'll just make a series of sounds to make that thing and then people read it and they go I know exactly what that is because you just kind of made up this thing but it works so I would say there's a very direct um, direct relationship between how Tom Robbins the life raft that was Tom Robbins skinny legs and all and my my writing my fiction anyway for sure wow that is so cool Um, how many times do you think you've read that book skinny legs and all I'm not a rereader so it was just the once yeah, yeah. I mean, I've gone back to look up little passages of mm-hmm. it to quote it and or I've had an epiphany. Even like 10 years later, I was I, I remember thinking about something. And I was like, oh, wait, maybe this was this and this. And I went back and just kind of looked through a couple of pages just to see if I had remember if I remembered it correctly. But I've never I'm not a rereader because. I mean, the I, I had an art teacher in high school that said because um, my high school was was in, there was a, a very large public library kind of right there by it. And he, we were at the library one day looking at art books. And he said um, something like, the tragedy of my life is that I, I have to accept I will never read every book in this room. And I had never, of course you won't, but I had never heard it said that way and never really put that in my head of, of this urgency of like, oh, my God, there's so much to consume. How dare I sit here and read this more than once? And, and so, no, I, I've only read it the one time. That's really cool. I mean, as somebody who is currently rereading the Harry Potter series for like the 15th time, it's hard for me to even think about. But then that you said that and I was like, shit, I've got to get right. reading. Right. It's a little terrifying. I mean, there's so many amazing books. I have I have like a, a little note on my phone because I hear I don't think a day goes by where someone doesn't mention something. I'm like, what book is that? What? And I put that on my list and. I'm always, I usually have a couple going at the same time. I mean, I have one by one, probably four by my bed and I have like one on my living room table. I have, I love cookbooks. I love them because they, to me, you know a people, you know a place through its tastes and smells. And so I have more cookbooks than I should. 
because I'm not a recipe follower that much. I'll read it and go, that sounds like this, and I'll just go make it. But something about just reading through a cookbook is so soothing to me because I feel like I'm connecting. I mean, if you imagine, like, a cookbook for, you know, some particular part of the world, if you cook it right, if you do well and you are patient and loving about the things that you're cooking, you're tasting something that someone on the other side of the world you'll never meet is also enjoying. And I love that connective idea. Yeah, really cool. Um, Did you pick a specific passage from the book um, that you wanted to read? Or we can come back to that at the end of this if you want to. I didn't look something up online or whatever. Yeah, or, I'd have to. Or we can skip it. Okay, cool. Um, I don't know if there's just one, probably that belly dancer scene. There's okay, a cool. scene in this restaurant in which there's all these men losing their minds over this woman dropping these veils. And it's each veil is kind of, it's really about consciousness and almost psychosis. And that, that the idea that there's, if you face psychosis or, or great mental anguish, rather head on there is liberation on the other side of it and that scene is intense because it's sexual and it's psychological and it's it's political and there's a lot to that scene and I remember putting the book down and taking a break right then being like damn like it's a feeling like man I need a cigarette I don't even smoke (laughs) you know it's like that kind of like whoa yeah what just happened kind of feeling um but it I, I yeah there there are you know I was pulling a couple of pieces from my um first book and I was looking back through it last night, and I found a couple of places where I did that with words, where I just made up a thing that didn't really make sense, but it, it got the point through that, that's very Tom Robbins. And I realized, like, that's not really that me to – here I've, like, picked two white dudes. <laughs> you know, I usually am like, no, the white men have enough power. Let's talk about the women or the people of color. And, and yet, you know. I have to give props where they are due, that, that that is the book that fell in my lap at that moment. And it could have been any book, but that was the book that fell in my lap at that moment when I needed a lifeline to say it's okay to write weirdly and to set your own rules. I love that. Great. Number four. Well, The Smiths. Awesome. I have to put that on there um, because that is another lifeline. I, um, You know, Texas has a bad rap because... Um, you know, it, it, you know, it's politics, right? And some stuff. And just yesterday, there was a headline that drove me crazy that I was tweeting about. But the thing is, is the cities in Texas are quite lovely. And it's just these like wide swaths of land that take you eight hours to drive between them that, that gives it a balance, let's say, right? Um, but where I'm from, Fort Worth, is uh, Van Cliburn is, is from there. So there's Uh, Six weeks of the year, it's flooded with international classical musicians because the international piano competition is there, the Van Van Cliburn. And and it shows. There's kind of two downtowns. There's old cowboy downtown that still has a working cattle drive a couple times a day, mostly for tourist reasons. But nonetheless, like cows will go through and it's still cobblestones. And then there is like this very fancy, beautiful arts patrony downtown and a lot of music and a lot of stuff and it's close enough to Austin that there's still a very vibrant live music scene and and wonderful theater and and there's a huge ballet and the symphony and the opera is magical there and and so there was a lot to feed my head with Um, but nonetheless I never felt like I fit in there ever ever there's like a lot of blonde people (laughs) I was just gonna say a Jew in Texas (laughs) sounds like a well 
That is a misconception. There, the Galveston project, as we were flooding Ellis Island, boats started being diverted to Galveston, Texas, and Buenos Aires, Argentina. So there's a sizable Gulf Coast Jewish community and sizable uh, South American Jewish community. Wow. Because they're like, we're running out of room for you people. And also, it was like <laughs> a little more sinister than that. It was yeah. some anti-Semitism, too. But nonetheless, like, um, um, I just didn't feel, I, I, you know, when you're a teenager, you see you feel like everything's bullshit anyway and you think you're smarter than everybody so there's that but i but i also um you know i my dad worked at a country club and he's he's been in the hospitality industry his whole life and knows so much about that and and was the president of this um, organization that all about club management and hotels and all that and that is his his He's so good at that, to watch him walk into a dining room and make sure every single person there feels very loved and special and that that night with that food is very special. He's so good at that, and he's so good at talking to people and connecting with them. And But none, like the, the backside of that is that I grew up around a lot of wealthy people but was always aware that, that we were still the help. And, and that was, you know... It, it wasn't like anyone ever treated me that way. And, I mean, I was, I, I still know a lot of people that were like kids of members and stuff like that. And, and, but we lived in that school district. So it was like the public school was a very she-she one. And there I was, you know what I mean? Like I, I always knew there was a little bit of us and them, but also I just never, like I was very tall, very early. I'm 5'10", and I don't think I've grown an inch since I was probably about 14, maybe, maybe before that. And like suddenly when I was probably like 11 or so, I suddenly had boobs and a lot of height and 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 like pale and a big nose and dark hair and like not looking like the people around me. Right. So I always just kind of didn't feel like I fit in. And and a radio station was launched in the Dallas Fort Worth area that suddenly had like XTC and Depeche Mode and The Cure and The Smiths. And I was like, what is this and where have you been my whole life? But in particular, The Smiths. And I would say like Smiths and Cure are neck and neck, but but The Smiths do win because the lyrics are are so cheeky. I mean, people go, oh, The Smiths are such a downer. But listen, really listen. And if you've ever felt like a little bit like a awkward ass outcast you get it because he's making fun of those of people in power even power they don't necessarily want and their dysfunction and all that and and through his through Morrissey's very um radically honest and sometimes super sarcastic way of of saying big truths he's written some things that I wish that I had written in particular the song there's a light that never goes out I think that's one of the most beautiful love songs in the world because it's so sinister. I mean, there's a lyric, if if a double-decker bus crashes into us, to die by your side would be a heavenly way to die. And if a double-decker bus crashes into us, to die by your side is such a heavenly way to die. And if a ten-ton I'm like that's stunning and gorgeous and it's silly and weird and it's dark but it's also very beautiful that like if that's how it's gonna go down and you and I are together godspeed 
look at me going out in such a way. That's lovely. I love that song. Um, I think my other favorite Smith song is Still Ill because it's it's not one people go to a lot. People usually go to How Soon Is Now with that, you know, very um, easily identified uh, opener. But that song is just so, it's so good and it's so perfect and the lyrics are so good and it, it just makes you just kind of like, it's, it's a song I put on when I'm just kind of like puttering around the house or working on a project or painting or writing or something. I'll just put it on because it just kind of gets you in this project mode. And, and it's a good one, but, but that, um, and I also have a cousin who's a, a little bit older than me and I benefited from all of her music and she was all, gosh, she was like Echo and the Bunnymen and Yazoo and, uh, Jane's Addiction and, oh, David Bowie, so much David Bowie. She was a big Prince fan, but like, I'm still not over David Bowie's death because he's another one that just said, I'm going to do it my way. And he, I mean, look at the conversations he inspired about gender way before anyone was having those conversations oh, way before right so um Oof, i'm gonna get a little teary i, I know <laughs> I, i'm i'm i i cried real tears over oh, yeah. david boy's death and i wrote a blog post that day because the way i found out about i opened my eyes that morning i looked at my phone and someone was tweeting if you didn't know david bowie personally you don't get to grieve him and i was like first of all what who is that I don't know, some rando on Twitter responding to somebody saying, oh, my gosh, this is killing me. Okay. And I thought, well, <laughs> wait a minute. A, what? David Boy's dead? B, that's not true. And and I wrote, I wrote this thing about in the case of artists, you do have a right to grieve because by definition, art is putting a little bit of your soul out there. It's not an easy task. It's not just picking up a paintbrush or typing. It's like... It's painful sometimes. I mean, I've been told sometimes to to watch me writing fiction from across the room. I like kind of wiggle a little bit. They're like, it looks like you're playing the piano because the way you move and you're like fidgety. And that's true because it's like I have to like get it out. Get it out. You got to crack open your chest and get it all out on the page. So it's not easy. So I think if you connect with some art that someone's made, you are connecting with them in a way. And like, no, I don't know like what the guy ate for breakfast, but... And I, I don't claim to know him better than his spouse, but certainly I connected with his music and suddenly the supply just became, you know, the, the, the supply is no longer and, and that music will never come back again. And so I think it's okay to grieve that. So I benefited a lot from my cousin's musical taste, but something about the way that the Smiths grabbed me at that time, yet another like white guy that's influenced me, which is so <laughs> obvious to me. But, um, but I think Morrissey's whole thing is like he was, he grew up in Manchester and this, you know, young man wrestling with his sexuality and and his sexuality and his his emotions and his love life have been a big part of his music. And and that, you know, he felt marginalized by that and he felt um, he felt that kind of I'm going to be just as weird as I want because I have nothing to lose, which I think comes through in his music. And I think there's a lot of people that just feel that that said there was a moment, um, for the longest time, The Cure was the band I had never seen. And I love them so much. And I think Disintegration is one of the best albums. To this day, I can sit down and listen to that whole album. And I, oh my gosh, I like it takes me back, but it also has stayed current throughout my life. And it's stayed relevant throughout my life. And, and there was a moment, um, because The Cure played at Riot Fest a couple of years ago in Chicago. And at the time, I was the GM of Red Eye. And, um, and I remember 
getting ready to go to Riot Fest and thinking about my younger self and all the concerts I used to go to. And I thought about that picture of me up on some random person's shoulders at this Jane's Addiction show with crap written all over my, my arms and thought of me fighting and, and grappling for fun and laughing at, at Riot Girl shows of all these bands. And, and I thought, I wonder if early 90s me would approve of me now. Like, I got this big old corporate job. I'm the polisher of this thing. And, and I always wanted to, to do that. I mean, that, that, that wasn't counter to what I wanted in my life. Um, I even have a diary entry from when I was a kid that said, one day when I grow up, I'm going to work at a newspaper in a big city in a tall building, and I will have an office that is red. And my office that read, I was red. I mean, I nailed it. Wow. And that's uh, visualization. For I know. You. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Very cool. Um, but I, I remember looking down at my feet that night as the cure were, as they were playing. And I had on, it was very muddy. And I had on these crazy tall boots. And I had on these like screwed up, um, like dangerous looking tights with holes in them and a short skirt and a crazy shirt and like a little leather jacket. And I looked and I was like, okay, you know what? Early 90s me would probably be okay with me now. She would approve. I've done right by her, I guess. And then I looked out over the crowd, and and it was so funny to see this at a Cure show because it seems like a, not a good fit. But Red Eye, not me, but the the marketing and promotions team had all these beach balls. We had accidentally ordered zillions more, and so they're like, let's just like give them to people at Riot Fest. So we were like, they had blown up all these beach balls and were giving to people. Well, they started showing up in the crowd and people were like playing crowd volleyball with them. And I, and it was an interesting way to connect past and present to me to here was this brand that I sit at the head of and these red eye beach balls going nuts everywhere while this song is playing that I used to listen to as a young woman in the early nineties and dream of all that I could try to be. And that was, and I was like, you're okay. You're doing okay. You're not a sellout. You're not old and lame. Maybe old, but not super lame. But but it's okay. You're doing all right, and you 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 kind of maybe turned into who you thought you might. I love that. Wow. Why music? Why for somebody who isn't a musician per se? Um, why music? You've listed two, you yeah. know, or se- you've several artists. Yeah. Um, music has a big, big role to me for a couple of reasons. Well, number one, I write to it and I do it like a soundtrack. I will sit there and play with my Spotify until I find the right song to write to that day. Cool. And then I hit repeat because it's like a soundtrack to me. Wow. While I'm writing this scene, it's got to be this. So Three Fallen Women, my first book was written, the first draft was written entirely to Last Good Day of the Year by Cousteau on repeat for weeks. And then the next draft um, was a Cocteau Twin song called Alice. And then um, a song from the Buena Vista soundtrack, Buena Vista Social Club soundtrack was the finishing, um, the finishing draft, the final draft. And it was what I wrote the first draft of my second book to. That to is that fascinating. Same song. I get on these, like, and I, when I run, I do the same thing. There's, and it, I think it's muscle memory to me that like there's a particular, I don't, necessarily connect with flogging molly but there's a song that i had a running coach when i ran my first marathon and she had this song going and so i was like well damn it i gotta play that song so i had it when the miles got tough on the back half of that marathon i just had 
um, Devil's Dance Floor by by flogging Molly <laughs> over and over in my ears because I just needed to, yeah. like my body will remember how to do this if I have this same song going. But, um, so I do that with music for whatever reason my brain does that. But um, also my parents met in a band in high school. And um, my my mom, I, I, she still plays the piano, but but she put away the tenor sax in adulthood. My dad continued to play the guitar and sing and that was just sort of his thing and I remember many times um like moments in the house he would just sort of we would be sitting around doing something and he would just kind of get his guitar out and just sort of start playing and um he does he really um does really beautiful work around like classical Spanish guitar that's very beautiful he has a a trademark on a song that's like a bossa nova song that he wow. did in the 70s um that i love that genre yeah so it's beautiful it's it's and, a lovely yeah. it's a lovely song and it's long and pretty and so chill and um but he he's from memphis and and he was very i mean he has stories of like interacting with elvis and um you know of of things happening at sun records and things that were yet to be a big deal and stars that were yet a big deal that and so so music is a big thing to him so I always had music on and so as much as I've talked about like grunge and all this like loud aggressive punk music and pretty dreamy songs to make writing with also I would say like Marvin Gaye and Otis Redding and and Al Green and and even later like Michael Jackson even like though there there's big influence for me there a lot that that because I, I like my dad always kind of had that on but I remember a day when those two things collided and that was um when Nirvana's Nevermind album came out and I went and bought the CD and I was listening to it at my parents house and my dad was like hold up what is that and he sat down and basically we just like sat there listening to it together and then he was like put that first song back on and it was it was uh it was smells like teen spirit and he <laughs> he got guitars out and he he like he just needs to hear it once and then he can play it so like with an acoustic guitar he was playing along with Kurt Cobain not aware yeah right and then he had and and we had a bass in the house and he's like hold on do it again do it again I want to play this part and so then he plays like the bass line which was very very simple so it was always I think it's just more of that creativity is flowing through all of us just as a matter of where it lands and how different parts of it need to be expressed and to me ideas tell you how they want to be expressed some ideas lend themselves visually and you want to make them into a film some ideas um you you don't want to cast a light on someone as much as you want to pass the microphone and some ideas have a sound more than a narrative and some ideas have more of a visual than a sound and i think those ideas just sort of reveal themselves and and i think that's certainly certainly something for my dad that that how music was just another part of a thing that he was good at you know and still is good at love that wow that is really cool um number five last but not least what is it last but not least this one's a little vaguer because I changed the official title of it a couple times first I was like oh definitely Nikki Giovanni poetry um the first time I read Ego Tripping by Nikki Giovanni I was like what is going on? This is so good. And that's a poem of hers that a lot of people point to. Um, But there's, I remember the first time I read it, and if you have not read it, I recommend it. it. And how funny that like, you know, 
fast forward years later, the Chicago connection that I've moved away from Chicago once and came right back as soon as I could. So it's like, it, it has a hold on me and I feel like it is home now. Um, but there are ego tripping. There may be a reason is the full title of her poem. And the first time I read that a teacher handed it to me and I was like, be serious because the, the class discussion was about, um, was about arrogance. And I was like, no, this is a woman claiming power. This is a woman saying, recognizing her own, um, you know, big worldly power. But sure, you could say ego tripping in the negative, but you could also say in the positive. And and I've always just thought it was thought it was just a lovely poem, and and the way it it falls, and it to me it is about recognizing your expansiveness and your kind of limitlessness. Um, so I first wrote that down and then her other poem called poetry is about writers, which got me thinking that it might actually be earlier than that. And that is, I've been a journaler my whole life as as soon as I could write. I mean, I have some journals that I kept like in first and second grade that are in terrible little penmanship, but it was pen because pen is cool. Cause I only had to write, cause you'd only write pencil in class, but I was like, oh, I'm going to write in a pen. <laughs> And I could see myself getting frustrated with how limited my vocabulary was at that age. And I knew I wanted to write better and clearer. And I started doing so through what you would now call a free verse kind of poem as at a, at a really young age because I just didn't like this sentence structure is not serving me. I need to do something bigger than that. So it's, it's poetry generally, but I would say it started early. And there are funny things in those journals. I've got them all. I've transcribed a bunch of them into, you know, a, a Word doc. And I've even read some of them in public because they're bizarre and weird. And I, I, you just see little me watching the world and trying to figure it out. But, but the way I am frustrated with words when I don't have the words to say I'm frustrated with words and I want to be able to say that bigger and clearer was so, was so funny to me that, that I knew what I didn't know. And usually you don't get that till you're much older it's that paradox of knowledge. You think you know so much when you're little, but the more you know as an adult, you realize how small your knowledge is and how much left there is to learn and to know. But I had that for some reason around around vocabulary and the way to express. But then I still didn't have that, um, you know, permission for th to, I couldn't even imagine a woman talking that expansively about herself, her power, her beauty, her sexuality, her grace, anything, until I read that Nikki, Nikki Giovanni poem. And I was like, be serious. That, that. And I didn't, and suddenly I had, I could name a thing I had struggled to find. So that was, that was that. But I would say her, her poem, Poetry, is closer to me now because it has things in there that even to this day I go, oh man, that's so true. I mean, there's lines in this, in this poem, um, Emo though emotion speaks too loudly to be, to be defined by silence, sometimes after midnight or just before the dawn, we sit, typewriter in hand, pulling loneliness around us. I love that line, pulling, like you imagine a blanket, pulling loneliness around us, forgetting our lovers or children who are sleeping, ignoring the weary wariness of our own logic to compose a poem 
No one understands it. It never says, love me, for poets are beyond love. It never says, accept me, for poems seek not acceptance, but controversy. I love that little part in there. Yeah. Because that's another place of like permission to just be as weird as you want and say the thing as strangely as you need to, to get that across. Because it's, I mean, it is cracking your chest open sometimes to do that work. Absolutely. Wow. Very cool. And have you written much poetry? I have. I've never published any of it. I, I aim to. I, I have no, it is hard for me to separate emotion and quality with poetry. Same. With fiction, I'm like full of heart, piece of crap on the page. Yeah. I can, I can, once it's written, I'm, I can set it aside and be very objective about fiction. And then with nonfiction and reporting, I can be like, sucked didn't suck you know right. I can be very very objective about it but something about poetry it's because it's it's a little more heart stringy I, I I don't know so so I aim to one of these days I will publish some poetry and and everyone will see just how dark and weird I am if my first book didn't didn't convince anyone of that <laughs> well I mean there's an interesting thing there too because people have a lot of misconceptions about about fiction and um the first question I always get is, is it autobiographical? Well, there's a heroin addict, there's a woman who leaves an abusive marriage, and and there's a serial killer. So no, <laughs> it's not. Good to know. But but there's stuff in there I get. I mean, if you've, if you've been playing along and listening to this conversation we've just had, and you go back and read the character Helen in that book about how she struggles with painting and making visual art, there's some me in there because the frustration of I can't paint right now. What do I need to do to get to paint? Um, there's some of that. There's some of 1991 me in a fighting with all my might in a women's only mosh pit at the front of a stage while the men are in back. There's a little of that in the serial killer because she she believes she's committing acts of justice that the world doesn't recognize. She's not killing men because they're men. She's like killing jerks that beat up women because she's like he's too powerful to to be to be properly brought to justice so I will deal with him so there's some of that you know I mean that's aspirational <laughs> I mean you know I certainly haven't killed anybody and I don't plan to but but you know you go gosh I wish I could see that powerful undeserving person fall from their seat of power and and see it in the hands of someone more deserving and that's what the character is doing she's that so as for the heroin addict that was just a that was a neighbor that I had. She used to um, shout, and, and that's where it started. It started with writing writing about her because she would freak out and shout out into the backyard. She thought there was a vortex out there. and she would. But she was so terrified. I mean, the first time it happened, it was funny, and then it was like, no, she's really hurting, and I would just sit out there, and I would, I would just sit there and listen to her because it was, it was deep, and it was – she was staring at a chain-link fence, but in her mind she was looking at a large blue vortex that – that people from the past were coming out of. They were hurting her. She believed she gave birth at one point um, in the vortex and then, you know, came back and left her fetus or whatever, left her baby behind. And, like, she had a lot of, you know, trippy stuff that she was shouting. And that's where it started. I just started writing about what I heard her do. And so that's, I think, what people don't understand about fiction. It's, it's one story that you started one day of your life. And in my case, I was just kind of writing what this neighbor was doing. So it wasn't, I, I didn't, like, I'm going to write a book with this big political agenda. No, you just start, I, I don't sketch writing. I don't outline it. I don't, um, I don't do anything like that. I just, I just sit down and write and, 
the story reveals itself to me. I love that. And that's how all good fiction comes to be. I think. I, I hope anyway. Um, I, I never, you know, you never really know how your work is and how it's received until you start meeting people that have read it that are strangers that have no reason to lie to you. Um, but but um, Three Fallen Women is listed in a textbook. And when that when it became included in a textbook, to me that was so validating. And that was kind of sad that I was like, I need academia to validate me. But it was validating in a different way than it had been validated. I got, you know, I got some fairly nice reviews, but, and, and I certainly talked to a lot of people that said this meant this to me and this is why, and that was very touching, but it was like this whole other place of validation that I hadn't gotten before. And I felt like I was always very fringe with my writing and intentionally. I mean, I didn't want to work with a big publishing house. I wanted a small boutique press. So I was like, this is a weird little book and it's going to take the right person to edit it. And I need to really work closely with that person and trust them. And I found that. I found that with uh, So New Media, who published it. So um, it, was, it was validating. But, but the second book, I don't think sounds anything like the first. But, um, you know, some friends of mine who have read, um, that I've let read part of the second, they're like, oh, still the same voice, but a little, a little more, um, they believe it's a little more vulnerable. They're like, I wouldn't have said it wasn't vulnerable in the first book, but reading the second one, I see more vulnerability that I think was hiding behind aggression in the first one. Wow. So you kind of peeled off the layer of maybe the aggression. Maybe. And now I've found this. That's really neat. I okay. mean, there's still lots of violence in that book, so who yeah. knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, I want to hear a little bit from the first book. Um, did, did you bring in? A... Yeah. Awesome. Um, so maybe just give us a little context behind the scene and then take it away. Um, so this is a really short little piece. Um, the serial killer is Frida. Uh, she leaves an abusive relationship with like a, you know, a very affluent life that she has with this man who's, uh, she leaves him anyway. Um, and she, over some time and reflection and a couple of other experiences, she goes in hiding for a while. She's like a waitress. She takes a bus. She's in hiding. She's changed her appearance. She's done all this stuff. Um, she, she is absolutely fed up. There's, there's, she, she kind of feels like she has to kill this person to get out of the situation. And he's, um, just gotten away with a bunch of terrible things cause he's, he's influential. He's, he's a, you know, of great power. And so she kills him and she, well, she chops him into bits. And so this is uh, a little bit as she is comp contemplating what she has just done. Frida never had any relationship with any sort of religion. She was taught about the various hymns and hers to worship while in her orphaned youth, but never felt kinship with any of them. On this night, as she sliced pieces of Haskin with joyful precision and scattered them around the room, she felt the presence of Hashem, of Buddha and Allah, of the triple goddesses and the whole fucking gang. She had found her religion and found it with a rush and a swish and a slicey, dicey death. And there's that slicey dicey death that there's that robin's thing where i didn't know what is that thing i want what is that word yeah she, she found it with a rush and a swish because you know what that is that's like the blade that's aggression and a what and i i remember sitting there going and i want it to be like a slicey dicey word what is that word and i was like screw it i'm gonna say slicey dicey death it's that she killed him by slicing him up and it's wow. like grotesque and weird, but thanks, Tom Robbins. Yeah. Let <laughs> me feel that one. <laughs> That's great. I mean, because it gives it kind of like a whole joyous feel, the slicey dicey. 
Yeah, I mean, that that was feedback I got about her character a lot was um, she seems to be so happy about it. I mean, I didn't make her a caricature. I made her a really, she's not really that troubled. She's just like a, the whole theme of that book is boundaries of people that just like do not enforce their their boundaries and just, just get pushed into a corner and have to do something really, really, um, really bold to get out of that corner. And, and, you know, that's when we do dumb stuff in our lives or crazy stuff or whatever, you know. Um, so that's what she does. So she kills this dude. Wow. One might say he had it coming. Yeah. But. And did that come from uh, an, uh, an aggression, you know, or that was just seemed like what it had to. No, I mean, that character, um, he had sort of tried to um, to hire her and, and was just a piece of crap. And, and you know, I mean, I, th- I think there, I, from where I sit now, I see kind of a, a metaphor there of, of this, um, like, women and work, and sometimes you don't know why you've been hired. You want to think because your work and your work ethic speaks for itself. Um, but there have been projects, I would say, on in business dealings, not not here in this stuff and not in the journalism part, but but on the you know on business side of things, um, where you go, where where like it only takes like one jerk to hit on you or something, then you're like, is that why I'm here? Because that because you thought you had a shot, because it because it suddenly undermines all your work and it suddenly undermines. You're like, dude, I'm working so hard just to be taken a little bit seriously just to get a seat at the table when it's so when you see like very mediocre dudes just just like blowing through it and like getting promoted every six months and all this stuff you're like dude I've been working my ass off and suddenly it all comes crumbling down because one guy makes a comment and you're like well, wait am I here because my work is seen or am I totally invisible except for like a shell that that guy finds attractive screw that guy so that kind of thing is frustrating that I that I think that was the metaphor there and that was the way that I articulated it was through that character. Wow. Slicey dicey. <laughs> Slicey dicey death. Um, and so now we're going to get to hear a little bit from your upcoming, not yet published, is it finished, would you say? Or what, will it not be finished until? I don't know. I mean, I've changed it a couple times because at one point I put this like um, kind of dystopian layer over it. I was like, but I think that was just me being stressed out, and I like the idea of like, hey, if the power grid's knocked out and we all go live in the woods, I don't have to deal with people and jerks on the internet. I think that was just me. That was my brain, where that went. Um, I took the apocalyptic stuff out. Um, it originally started about, um, I had a lot of connection to Hurricane Katrina, and um it started with that and all these houses and, and good friends talking about what there was left to come back to after being away and and the condition of okay your house is safe to go into and, and it's like what are you talking about there's not there's a fridge there's nothing there's nothing left I don't have a wall and I was thinking about that and what would it be like to go in to refurbish a house like if you if you weren't busy dealing with the trauma of going through that and if you could just if you went in because I was kind of like at the time like Brad Pitt went in and bought a bunch of houses and was redoing them I was like what? that would be so satisfying to like fix up a house that had fallen apart so it really started about this house and then it expanded to this artist who takes on this house and it became this generational tale of of the way we the way the things our relatives do sticks with us either because we go and do the opposite because I don't want to be like that or 
oh my God, I'm being that, I'm doing that thing, or look how that has manifested in my life. So it, it became this multi-generational tale, and it skips around in time. So there, And it, go, it goes like 1952 is the opening, and then it's 79, and then it's like 1840, and then it just keeps jumping around of all these through lines and how they've manifested, particularly with the women in this family. Cool. I love that. Was it so fun doing all the research and figuring out how to write about each time period um, differently or was it stressful? No, I, I didn't. I didn't do much. Uh, the research I did was geographic. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, where would this group of people been? Where would they have been? And so I was looking that up and where would they? OK, if this if this thing in history happened, where would they have fled where would they have gone to so I was kind of tracking a family around but I wasn't really looking at there's not much in there about what there's not much like continuity stuff that there's very little about a car there's a lot of rural spaces which are relatively unchanged I mean in largely in large part so I I don't have much technology in there Um, I've never written about social media I have I have a phone in this in this book and it it was kind of like is that cheating yeah, that's I, an interesting I feel notion. We, yeah, I feel weird about technology in there. But there, yeah, there's a phone because it needed a, there's a purpose for having a phone yeah. in there. And in fact, I think I have that scene, but but it's again, it's like a, that's a creepy scene. All right, you ready, ready to creepy? read it? Yeah. Okay. This is 1979. Um, well, I have two little short pieces. One is a one is in the early 60s. Well, let's do 79. Okay. The afternoon... Daniela and Oscar died. Something was strange in the air, and Maria Elena and Pilar both knew it in their bones. Maria Elena knew it all day and tried different angles over the phone to convince Daniela to come for dinner with Oscar and Pilar, but Daniela resisted them all. She'd not mentioned to her mother that Oscar was having a drinking day, a day he'd wake and start drinking tequila and tomato juice in the morning that would give way to beer in the afternoon and whiskey in the evening. On his second tequila and tomato, when Daniela awoke, he was already angry, deep old boyhood hurts and scars left by his mother washing clean in the liquor. Daniela became, as she always did in these moments, both the nurse of relief and surrogate target. Words that should have been spat in self-defense to his mother now came too late and too angrily at Daniela, and any protest would mean fingerprinted arms and dark bruises on her ribs and hips. This it would mean, and still, Daniela's melancholy pressed on her heart and mind and kept her tied to Oscar in hopes that one day she'd earn her melancholy lifted Tiny Pilar, just nine days past her seventh birthday, felt something rotten lurking in the house that day, too. But, being so small, she couldn't speak the words of warning, only feel, only fret the feeling as her tiny heart flitted and flopped, knowing only vaguely the horrors to come later. And that's the day her parents are killed. Wow. In a murder-suicide. And this little girl witnesses it and sees her father shoot her mother and then she starts running to her grandparents house like through a desert in this horrible rainstorm she's running and as she she is getting through the door she hears another gunshot and she knows that her father is dead but even at seven I have her kind of being okay with that because he's dangerous and you know cruddy why what about these violent I don't know gruesome I know it's just a fascination it is. And I, since you were a young kid? Always. I think, I mean, I used to have nightmares, like, about being killed in a violent way. And being, I used to be very afraid of that. And But then what overtook that was 
was a frustration with not being able to talk about it. Being so restricted to talk about it made it only even more interesting to me because it was like, don't be negative, be a lady. And I'm like, well, we're all going to die. Shh, don't say things like that. It was like, well, no, we are. I mean, I remember being very little. And, you know, I, I credit to my parents. Um, we had a death in the family, very sudden and shocking one when I was pretty little. And I don't know why my parents were as open as they were with me about it. Um, it was a terrible accident. And, and um, I recall them describing to me like exactly the extent of the injuries and um, talking about that. It was very strange. You know, my, my one relative wanted to go, you know, see her. And, and it was, they told me why she couldn't because there wasn't anything identifiable. And, and that, and my parents explained that to me. I was little, I was probably five or six. And they were, they were quite matter of fact about that. And I said, well, what happens when you die? And they're like, well, you are dead. Like they weren't, they weren't trying to be like, you go to heaven or the whatever. They just said, well, that means you, you're done. And so I think that created kind of a pathological urgency in me. That's probably why I've always done several things at once. Um, but also this kind of, somehow that was okay, not just okay, but necessary to talk about things like that, that it was, it's stuff that happens. And I think, um, maybe that's served me well in in the journalism world as things happen i i tend to be at my best when when things are you know happening or or major news is happening or um and even in crisis i i, I worked with the red cross for a little while on their um, mass casualty and disaster team and i was you know even when terrible things were happening around me it was there was, I would, I first, I don't know why I was able to just kind of always focus and like, here's what needs to happen next. And, um, you know, my parents have been very clear, like when things are going south for us, like it's up to you to, you know, um, and as they've gotten older, they've had medical crises and things like that, where I've, I've had to say like, okay, I can grieve this later. Or I can freak out later right now. This is what needs to happen. Um, and I, I think that's what made that in me is, is that very not emotional, but not not emotional and not um, not hands off, not weird and in denial, but just a very straightforward like this is this is a terrible thing that has happened. And this is the these are the facts of it. And so I don't know. It's just maybe like not flinch away from it. It's it's to me, it's less that I'm maybe a little bit Marticia Adams and maybe. I'm just willing to look at dark things. They don't necessarily bum me out. In fact, a huge pet peeve of mine is when I tell somebody something, they go, oh, man, that really sucks. Hey, don't put your stuff on me. Like, sometimes things just are what they are. You know, sometimes they suck, but sometimes they just are. Sometimes dark shit happens in the world. Sometimes things are scary and weird. And I just think facing things head on is really important. And and I, t I think that, too, is another, you know, a kid thing because... When I was a kid, my dad threw me in the deep end of a pool, and I don't remember, I don't remember freaking out. I remember coming up, going, "Oh shit!" And then he said something like, "You're not going to drown, but you have to swim to me. I'm not going to let you drown, but you got to swim. You got to learn to swim." And and then suddenly I had great confidence. So I think there's power. I, I have some neurological wiring and diving in and figuring it out and just facing things head on. That's probably served me well 
sometimes it's served me terribly because I think sometimes I'm just like, sure, I could probably figure out how to build a rocket. I'll just Google it. Sure, I, I can figure that out. Sometimes when I should be like, yo, you don't know what you're doing. Stop. I always go, yeah, okay, I'll figure that out. So I think <laughs> I think it's that. I just think I'm sometimes just willing to, to face things that I, I think it's important to face things. And so therefore I make myself do it. And that, Amy Guth, is why I admire you so, bless so you. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, this has been a very special conversation, and I feel like I have learned so much about you. <laughs> and I'm sure the listening audience agrees. Um, wow, you just really, the way you speak, the images that you induce just through, you know, even going back to um, the second clip that you read from from your newest book um the 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 way the liquor washes over Mm -hmm. that image I I was like damn yeah because it's like it really twists it forces you well clarity of languages for journalism you want to say it as succinctly as possible and as clearly as possible and fiction is for where you can play with that you don't say he is an alcoholic and he drinks because he has this childhood trauma you say he's washing these old hurts and they manifest in bruised bruised ribs and arms and you can say things in you know flowery and and visual ways that that you don't get to play in in the journalism world when you just have to say it very straightforwardly yeah and you're good at both thank you (laughs) yes thank you so much amy anything else you want to add? I think we covered a lot. I think we did too. This may be your longest podcast yet. Yes. Honored to be on. Honored to have you. Uh, Amy Guth is a host at WGN Radio and a very esteemed media force, uh, as well as a novelist and a feminist and a great friend and role model. And thank you so much, Amy, for joining me. This is Lisa FM. This week's bumper music by Hopbox, brand new EP he just released called Dawn. You can find that on soundcloud.com slash palette.